I come from the school of teamwork. I love teamwork. I don't like superheroes. I think they just die faster. Uh, so I don't want to be the superhero. I do would love to have, uh, I would love that if I had my technical co-founder from day one, but that's also another challenge for a non-technical person like me, again, to understand how important it is to have this technical co-founder. And then how are you going to find this co-founder? And then how are you going to estimate if this is the right like co-founder and then um, if you are aligned and you're working together well so in in general of course i to me i think it's important it's crucial not only because it's a technical person but also because you need support yeah. uh, support with the logic of the company of the startup uh, and a tech co-founder is not someone who just builds because um, they might, the way they build might affect completely the way we sell or the, mm. the, so, so it's not just someone who builds, it's someone who shares with you the logic behind the business. Welcome, Hannah. Hello. Thank you. Thank How's you for having me. Good. It's, it's good so far. Good so far. Do, do you, I would like to have your, uh, your own version to introduce yourself on your own uh, on your own words and of course to tell us about bloomcart well um, my name is hanan as as you just mentioned i'm the co-founder and ceo of bloomcart it's mena's first try before you buy software what we're working on mainly is solving uh, a problem of convenience uh, of convenience for online shopping that solves the gap between what you expect to have and what you actually have. Um, and this is mainly we solve it through allowing shoppers to try before they buy. Nice. And Hala, if I can ask, was it this, is it something uh, related with your background? I'm trying to understand, and I would like to share this with, uh, with our community. What was the inspiration for you before you started uh, Bloomcard? Well, just answering the first question, I think it is related and it's not related. Um, because if I would explain my background to you, I studied architecture. So if you're thinking of an architect building a SaaS product, then it's way definitely irrelevant. <laughs> um, but also architecture to me was my way to uh, learn tools to design the experiences that I would like to see in this life. Um, and to me, it was my first step thinking logically, deconstructing what a final idea would look like into steps. Uh, so if, if you think about it this way, so I would say, yes, it is also relevant. Um, the, the reason behind starting Bloomcart, I think, um, is also convenience. Again, as, as human beings, we always find problems to our daily lives. Um, maybe most people would wait for someone to solve them for the, to solve these problems. Uh, founders mainly are the people who take action and decide to solve their own problems. Um, Bloomcart started actually during the pandemic. I just had a decision to stop working on my previous startup, which was an event planning. Um, and I was volunteering with Founder Institute 
to um, to onboard founders to the program. And it's when that I realized that I actually want to build something scalable and I don't know how. Uh, so I joined the program and I knew it has to do with something I like, which is clothing, something I'm good at, which is buying them. <laughs> um and something people will pay for, which is during the, the the pandemic, of course, you will not be able to shop anywhere but online. And this is where the whole idea of Bloomcart started from an e-commerce website, actually. Um, and it's one during one of the calls, I realized that my previous startup was was not a scalable business. Um, and I wanted to have a scalable one. So I made a decision to shut down my previous business um, and start a new one that is scalable. And I need, I wanted, of course, to learn how to build that. Um, I wanted to do something that I like because I'll be spending a lot of time doing that in the future, which is I like buying clothes. <laughs> um, I should also be good at it. And I'm also good at buying them with affordable prices. Um, and it should be something that people will pay for. And during the pandemic, people had no option but to uh, buy online. And this is what initially uh, the core of the idea, which was literally selling clothes online. Um, what we understand is that you're not the typical profile of the founder who has either experienced a problem and is trying to solve this problem or has the domain expertise. So you are something in between or something a different type of founders who want to experiment, who want to, um, you know, to, to, to enter in, the, in a domain without being expert. Uh, is this the case? Yeah. If, if you mean an expert in tech, of course not. Expert in e-commerce. I mean... Uh... Actually, neither in e-commerce. What really happened is during the Founder Institute program, I was talking to one of my friend's uh, brother uh, and and he works in e-commerce and he was like when when I was asking him about this idea and he said oh my god did you land on like millions to do this e-commerce website and I said no I, I just want to start uh, and he works in this ecosystem and he said it's uh, it will take you a lot of money and at that point I didn't even understand what he's talking about but this person actually um, spent a lot of time educating me we used to spend hours online educating me about e-commerce and later on he became an advisor um Anna, what 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 was the the knowledge that you took from this very first advisor i mean what what was the element that you were missing was it uh, about the business building process overall or it was it uh, about e-commerce more specifically no, it was mainly about e-commerce and it was about the operations in e-commerce. It was also about, um, for example, the whole process, the, the supply chain of, to me, when I started, I, I literally started as someone who wants to do something. That's it. Okay. <laughs> and how to get from this point to that point, I had no idea. Uh, e-commerce, I realized, is is a whole big world and I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know what to research. <laughs> so so I think it was my e-commerce one-on-one, uh, 101 session. Okay. Um, so it was a combination of your, you know, your, um, your eager to build something on your own 
but at the same time to combine with this emerging need that uh, actually was driven uh, from COVID, from uh, this situation that boomed e-commerce. Yes, I, I think you to do something to qualify actually for building anything. Sometimes, of course, if it's um, a medicine uh, or a building, you need to be the engineer or the doctor. Otherwise, I think everyone, everything is learnable yeah. as long as you uh, as you're willing to learn. Because there is there is this, for example, I'm one of these persons, or at least I used to have this kind of strong belief that founders, especially on the B2B side, need to have some domain expertise. Or not necessarily that it is a prerequisite, but it's something that can make a big difference. Do you see something different? I mean, how, how you would approach the whole thing after uh, this almost two years now that you started, uh, since you started BlueCard? I think I agree and I disagree because I, I do I, I, I am a supporter of the theory of you can learn anything. Does it help if you have the experience? Of course it does. It will uh, it will give you more time to learn something else. <laughs> um, so so I cannot deny the value of experience. For me, the experience that served me a lot actually is the mindset of the architect. Because it's very similar to the mindset of the entrepreneur. Um, the logic of the engineer is similar to the logic of the entrepreneur. Uh, the fact that I can design um, a building allows me also to design an experience. Mm -hmm. So what served me, the experience that I had, is the logic of building experiences. And at the end of the day, Either my experience that I'm building is an event or a physical store or a SaaS product. At the end of the day, it's the logic of building an experience. So it works. I like the analogy. Can you give us, can you become a little bit more practical or, you know, um, to understand this, how you took your experience on design processes or design buildings, how this practically helped you on during um, uh, Bloomcard, during uh, the business building process in, uh, at Bloomcard? Yes, actually, um, it took me around six months <laughs> to understand the process of building a SaaS product. Um, yes, there is logic behind it, but I think um, because what really happens is usually what for someone who's not a tech person and you want to build a tech or a tech-enabled product, you go to these developers and you tell them, you know what, build me an application uh, for losing weight. And you think you just briefed them and now they can get what you want. And I did that mistake. Um, and they built me something that is functional in terms of technicalities, but not functional in terms of the service that I want. And it took me a long time of, of uh, I blamed these developers a lot, like, oh my God, how didn't they get it? And I realized um, if I go back to the logic of architecture, back again, no architect, if, if I'm going to build um, a house for a client, there should be specifications. And I did not give this engineer any specifications to build in, like they have no blueprints. So I asked myself, what are the blueprints that these builders would need? Uh, and this took me to the 
this question led me to knowing that there is something called user journeys that I should build that turns into user stories that most probably a product manager will help me build. And then we turn it into a prototype that a UX designer will help me build. And now, like at that point, I realize, oh my God, there's a lot of people doing <laughs> a lot of work for this developer to, uh, to understand what I want. Mm. Um, and no one explained that to me. Um, people talk about it, but like, no one takes you from this step to this step to this step to this step. And in and many times we lose money <laughs> or the funding that we just raised trying to figure this out. Yeah. Um, Hannah, you said that you it took you approximately six months before realizing what the SaaS is about. Can you uh, walk us through on what you realized on how you managed to accelerate your learning on the SaaS world? Because our podcast is all about SaaS. So I would like to deep dive a little bit more on this. How you manage within six months to bridge the gap from a, an architect to become a SaaS founder. Uh, you had an advisor, as you said, but any, any other practical steps that uh, you made that help you, you know? Uh, I did attend a course about um, like uh, Developers 101, understanding what is full stack, what is front end. Like I, I didn't even know how to talk to these people. I just blamed them. I didn't like them. <laughs> um, and, and then I realized, okay, maybe I need to, to, to speak their language. Uh, obviously they're not going to speak mine, so I should learn how to speak theirs. Um, it helped me a lot, at least to explain my problem, because before that I was unable to... It's like I'm speaking Japanese and you're speaking Arabic and we'll never meet. <laughs> I understand. And Hannah, do you think that this is about jargon? Is it about terminology or about mindset? Of course, we do need to agree on one terminology, but it's the mindset because I was one of these people who would underestimate the value of the tech department. Mm. Uh, again, I felt this... Usually as an architect, we feel it when people say, you know what, draw me this drawing. No, 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 it's not a drawing. It's infrastructure. It's like, and I think I did the exact same thing with, with thinking about the infrastructure of a product. Um, because when you go to service providers, they'll never explain the intensity of what they're building. Maybe because also customers like me wouldn't have asked. We don't care. We just want the result. But as a founder, you don't want the result. You want the process before the result because the result might change. Mm. Um, so, so, Hannah, as far as I understood, you had some hard period of, you know, struggling with learning the, the, the essentials around um, building a product, a SaaS product. Retrospective, do you think that if you could, you know, um, focus more on finding a technical co-founder from the very beginning, this would uh, help you move the business forward faster? Or you think that it's all about the commercial founder and sometime, somehow down the line, you will manage to onboard some technical person to help you? Do you think that, in, in, other, ways, in other words, do you think that having a technical co-founder from the very beginning is necessary or is it nice to have? I come from the school of teamwork. I love teamwork. I don't like superheroes. I think they just die faster. 
so I don't want to be the superhero. I do would love to have, uh, I would love the, if I had my technical co-founder from day one, but that's also another challenge for a non-technical person like me, again, to understand how important it is to have this technical co-founder. And then how are you going to find this co-founder? And then how are you going to estimate if this is the right like co-founder? And then um, if you are aligned and you're working together well. So in, in general, of course, I to me, I think it's important. It's crucial, not only because it's a technical person, but also because you need support. Yeah. Uh, support with the logic of the company, of the startup. Uh, and a tech co-founder is not someone who just builds because um, they might, the way they build might affect completely the way we sell. Or the, mm. the, so, so it's not just someone who builds, it's someone who shares with you the logic behind the business. That's super interesting. And that's a, a big and uh, very important topic for all the founders that uh, are listening to us. Um, and I will uh, come again on this probably uh, down the line. You mentioned before that you started the business because you had something non-scalable and you want to start. Uh, you wanted to start a scalable business. Why is that? So, is it, is it about the ambition of uh, building a big business? Is it about the ambition of building uh, big dollars? Why necessarily you want to build a scalable business? What what was the reason? Yeah, of course, we like dollars or euros or any currency you would like to have. But actually, no, it's not because of that. It's because with my previous business, I worked so hard. Um, and I assume everyone with a business is working so hard. With exactly the, 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 the amount of hard work I was uh, investing, someone else is also investing. But what happened is after seven years of working on that business, I started seeing people around me who also have business businesses get winning grants and then getting investments. And whenever I apply, I am just not eligible. And for some reason, at some point, I was um, I applied to this uh, competition a lot and like for four times for four years and I got four rejections. Uh, and then I got fed up with it and I wanted to know why. So I sent one of the jury members and I told her, you know what, I really want to know why each year I'm rejected. <laughs> and she said, because this is not a scalable business. And I said, how come this is not a scalable business? Uh, she said, yeah, we want people with, with um, impact better than this. And I didn't know it. And then I heard it again from my husband who works in the same ecosystem of startups. And he kept telling me this is not scalable. And I said, why? We worked with this client, this client, this client. And I didn't get it. I couldn't get what is scalable? Because I used to think scalability is me increasing my operations, and I did. Um, so it hit me again with Founder Institute when I was explaining the program. For some reason, I explained scalability. And this is when I knew, okay, if I'm doing the exact same work, if it's a seed, I don't want to plant it in sand. I want to plant it in, 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 in red, fertile soil mm. so if it's the same work let it bloom so you you realized as as an entrepreneur that you can put the same hard work the same effort but the upside with a scalable business can be significantly 
bigger that's that's the idea i like it and i like it um tell us a little bit more about bloom card um i want to understand a little bit more what is the exact problem that you are solving uh and how your solution as Bloomcard is different to other similar solutions. Tell us about the direct or indirect competition. Tell us what is the particularity of trying to have this kind of service in Jordan or uh, in the wider uh, Middle East region. So again, um, I'll just go back maybe to what, what, what started. We started with the e-commerce website and I, um, and to me, at that point, um, selling online was, I used to sell on Instagram during the program because I didn't even, it was a three and a half months program. So I had to come up with an MVP and my MVP was selling on Instagram. It was well, like as a test, um, I, I did validate the need. I was selling and then um, we started selling more, which is amazing. But we started, I, I ended up spending 12 hours on Instagram answering uh, messages like, what's the color? I mean, it's white. You can see it's white. But no, she wants to see it in, uh, uh, in, in, in daylight. And then, like, we started having these weird questions about the product itself. We were selling apparel. Um, and it was, I, I started thinking, why are they asking these weird questions? Because we do have the description. And um, I thought of it, if I was the shopper, yeah, I actually will ask the same questions because you are asking me to pay for a product that I have never seen before and to trust us that this picture will match my reality. But what if the size didn't work? What if the white on the screen is not the actual white that fits my color tone and, and skin tone and all these questions? So we thought, you know what? We'll give you all these items that you might like, try them out. If you like them, keep them. If not, return them. And this is when we doubled conversions. Uh, people loved it. We started selling items like pants that usually do not sell. Um, and I was thinking, why all merchants are not doing that? I must be so smart. <laughs> I like it. So practically, the need of, uh, you, you are covering the need, you are uh, trying to serve the need of customers to see, feel the product before um, putting their money on, on, on them. Um, is this something which is applicable only to, to apparel, to clothing? I think the apparel um, sector, if I may say, is would have the highest conversions on this one, but it would apply to so many things. For example, eyewear. If you're going to buy sunglasses online, how are you going to mm -hmm. know if it fits your face? If you're going to... Uh, uh, if you're going to buy a charger for your phone, there are so many types, ones that they charge fast and ones that they don't. How would you know? You need to try. So even, even if you're going to buy home accessories, uh, this uh, pillow, would it actually fit your sheets or not? Mm. You wouldn't know. So it applies to so many things. But again, I believe that the most highest uh, need for it will, will mainly come from apparel. When you start, started considering the tribe before you buy as a service in, uh, in Jordan, did you make an exploration? Did you see if there was any other similar service, at least in the region, or any other similar product or software product outside the region um, and probably do some, some business with them? 
for example, yeah. instead of trying to build something from scratch, to see, okay, has someone else built something outside the region, probably in some other ecosystem or in US or UK, that I could work with them and, you know, do some part of it? Yes. Um, actually, I, I like, we have um, one of uh, the main, like the leading entrepreneurs in our region, Fadi Randur, he says, copy, paste and innovate. Um, because you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Uh, the the idea of uh, the um, website, the try before you buy website, maybe it was new to me, maybe it was new to my region, but it's there in other uh, in other regions. Uh, actually, Amazon um, launched the idea of try before you buy. They are the market leaders with launching. Um, whatever features or, or services that come up to e-commerce. So they started that, not even me. Um, but what's new about it, again, is how are we going to do these trials in our region where 90% of people pay in cash rather than credit cards, where we don't have um, easy, um, we don't have infrastructure for returns. Like, for example, in the Middle East, you will not go to a drop-off area or the, to the post office to return an item. Someone needs to pick it up. Um, so even with the amount for regulations, for example, in Jordan, where I live, it is okay. It's fairly legal not to have a return policy. In the UAE, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. So we have all these differences from one country to another within the same region. For the infrastructure that your try before you buy software will plug into. So it's not easy to actually do it because of all these differences in the infrastructure. So I suppose what you're saying, Hannah, is that the localization, you, you had seen similar services outside the region, but not within your region. And the localization factor is something significant that needs to be considered and build a product around this local particularities. Is this the case? Yes, 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 yes. 100%. Tell us a um, bit, Hannah, for example, you saw some time before you buy product or service in Europe or in the US. How mm -hmm. is different and how you are planning to make this different through Bloomcard in your region? The key differences. So the key differences is when you talk about a try before you buy software in the US, they only do they are a software that automates online trials. If you want this software to work, you need to also have another software that does return automation. And then uh, it plugs into another system for logistics, specifically to do the returns. In our region, like what we're doing right now, we're not only doing the software for trials, we're doing the return automation, and we're actually doing the integrations for logistics because no one is going to do the return. So in, in North America, you just do the software that plugs into an existing operation. What we're doing is we're doing the whole operation mm -hmm. because otherwise we don't have anything else to operate what we do. So Hannah, is this more related to Logtech? I mean, it sounds to me that it's probably or it's becoming more uh, related to logistics rather to purely commerce and purely soft e-commerce software. Uh, is it about log tech or e-commerce software? That's that's a question. Actually, this is um, 
it's it's a good question and we ask it to ourselves a lot um my main or our main intention is not to do logistics my main intention as bloomcart is to integrate to existing logistic solutions if i can't for example in jordan now what we're doing is because this layer is missing so we're we're doing it but we're not intending to keep doing it this forever what we want to focus on is the process of online trials mm-hmm. um we might go to another country like the UAE where i can find logistic integrations much easier and in this case we will not do the logistics so again this is the complexity of the mena region where in each region um in each country something will work well but other thing is 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 a gap that you need to fill and it works this way in in different countries and i guess this this complexity creates the opportunity for entrepreneurs like yourself because if you manage to you know to overcome this complexity and build a product that streamlines the the, the full thing i suppose the opportunity is big and uh, the market is big uh is is anyone else in the region at least to your knowledge who is trying to do or has tried to do something similar i mean have you seen anyone else try to do this but he didn't make it for some reason there's um actually when we first started as an e-com- a try before you buy e-commerce website there was one in saudi arabia and they were focusing on sportswear on sport shoes um um and they branded themselves as the, as, as the try before you buy store um i'm not sure honestly um if if they're actually operating um specific online trials with the intent, with with the uh, infrastructure because they don't even have it so i'm assuming that they will they're doing it the same way we used to do it uh as an e-commerce website um if if the the, the idea of trying online by the way we have in the middle east noon noon is equivalent to amazon um maybe they don't have they do not branded as 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 try before you buy but they have really smooth return policies that would kind of mimic the way trials would work but it's not online trials um you have stores uh, brand stores um who sell big brands they kind of allow you to uh, to check the item before you buy it so they deliver it to your house and you can see it if you don't like it maybe they'll exchange it for you but it's it's considered like the vip service in dubai um recently i've just seen a startup who was a marketplace that does try before you buy and maybe just last month they pivoted into the saas software format that we are doing so these are, this will be your direct competitors i suppose yes and how are you planning to do something different i mean Do you have any differentiation strategy or any positioning that will make you feel that not feel that you will make your business be unique and have a very specific proposition? To be honest, the beauty of uh the like try before you buy with all the missing layers of the infrastructure. It it's a big market for us both and it it has space for even more competitors to come. That being said, I think what what we are doing now that's special is the instant trials and it's um inspired by the Jordanian market actually. 
um, instant trials co- close the, the, the shopping uh, cycle um, within one day, which is magical. Yeah. Uh, instead of uh, 24 days for a return policy to, to end, or even a three or four days trial, we're closing this instantly. Um, which is something we are only offering. Like it's only us offering. Hannah, tell us a little bit because the benefits for the end user are obvious. They can see, they can feel the product before making the decision. Tell us the benefits, the, the tangible benefits uh, for the merchant. Is it, is it about uh, increasing conversions? Is it about increasing uh, average order value? And if you can share with us any metrics that you can have from uh, trial customers or customers in general? Well, the main, um, actually, maybe the best uh, way when we talk to merchants that converts is usually when we talk to merchants, they've already started noticing that they have a problem with their conversions when they compare online and offline. And they have been trying to find ways to deliver the best, the closest um like representation of their products to their customers. So when we tell them your customer will actually experience your brand, like your product, um, especially for the, the type of brands we work with who, who have good value, uh, good quality. And it, it to them, yes, please, because they know that if people touch my item and feel it, we know they will buy it. Um, one of the examples that happened with us, actually, which is very interesting, it happened so many times that, uh, for example, Vios wants to try this T-shirt. So we, we send you um, size medium and, and small. For some reason, you end up buying both. Why? Because you loved it so much that you got one to yourself, the size that, 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 the size that fits you, and then you got it a gift to someone else. This happened so many times. Um, they they also use the the idea of try before you buy for abandoned carts because mainly if you abandon a cart you're not sure about it. If I offer you to try it, it's a conversion. So what's the core use case that probably you uh, mainly target, and what if you can say with us some metrics, some KPIs, or some improvements that you have seen? One of on that when we we talk about abandoned cart. There are some tools out there that say, okay, we can reduce the, the cart abandonment by 10% or so. When, when using uh, Try Before You Buy, you will notice the difference, in, the increase in conversions. Um, it, it's 20% plus. Sometimes, sometimes out of, of 10 items, you sell seven. Sometimes out of 10 items, you sell five. But it's practically so rare that you, out of 10 items, you sell nothing. And if you do sell nothing, it means you need to investigate what's happening. There's a problem here. Now you are talking so about even... the 10 products that you have delivered as a try before you buy, and the number yes. of items that were kept by the customers. But what yes. about, I mean, I don't know if you have um, made any A-B testing in terms of someone or the, the same merchant uh, who uses try before you buy, what was the average order value, what was the um, conversion rate before and after the trial before you buy? If you Usually we, look, I, I know it's a big claim, but usually we double it. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do we double it? Because our service is not only the software. My service to, to a brand is also the support and, and mon- like we monitor your KPIs with you. 
For example, we start noticing that for some merchants, six items are the best number for you to get the conversion right. For another brand, it's 10. For another brand, it's it might be 15. So the service we offer is not only the software, it's also the, 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 the data analysis that comes with the software. So you as a merchant would be able to, to optimize your um, configurations of the software in the way that, that suits you. That's one. And one of the main two things that we also offer and merchants love, it's customer service. Following up on a try before you buy order manually or even on, on a returned item manually is so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with the tools we offer with try before you buy, uh, even if it's done in partially manual, this is something we cover. If you get the fully automated version, it's fully covered. So we are saving you uh, like tens, maybe 40 hours of, of work, which is um, monthly salaries you're paying. So you you have two different KPIs. One is time saving and the other is increasing uh, conversions. Uh, I like it. And I like the fact that you said that the product, the service, and I suppose down the line, some algorithm will customize and will adjust based on uh, to its uh, merchants in terms of the number of suggested items and number that uh, the number of items or the, the, the type of the items that will be shared uh, with the with the shoppers. Um, I know, Hannah, that you, as as far as I know, you have raised the first uh, pre-seed round or something. I know that many entrepreneurs, and I would like to have your opinion on that. Many entrepreneurs believe that they need to have some money before starting the business. So they focus more on raising a, a first angel round or pre-seed round and then start building the business. There is the other school which says start building the business without any money, prove some traction, and then go to the investors. What was your case and what is your advice to entrepreneurs for this particular um, uh, topic of fundraising? Is it a prerequisite or is it a product, a byproduct of your traction? I think in general, if I'm going to answer, it's just like dieting. You choose your diet based on where you see yourself. Uh, If you want to build a small business um, or even a big one, but you have time, you do not mind spending um, um, maybe five, five years longer, you can bootstrap and that's okay. I don't think... I know it looks trendy to raise funds, but I think it's not necessarily needed for founders. In my case, I am pro-fundraising because I wanted to move faster. Again, I had a business. I tried bootstrapping. It was too long. (laughs) Uh, That being said, when I first started Bloomcart, I was actually broke. I had to pay, I remember, $400 for like the, the program fees for Founder Institute, and I borrowed them from my friend. And then we had to register to incorporate in Delaware. So I paid, I, I borrowed more money from my sister. So I had, I had zero. <laughs> um, I do believe that you can always start. Um, you might need the money. Money is a catalyst, like f- fundraising just is not the real reason why you do things. And I don't believe that money will ever stop me. It may slow me down, Mm -hmm. but it will never stop me. 
and I started with again with with nothing. Even when we were selling items, actually, this is something I learned. I used to think that to test your idea, you do need money, uh, and if you spend a lot of money, the MVP gets even better. And I I think this is. Um, this is something I did before, and I, I wasted thousands of dollars to test something that is useless. <laughs> like the, the test itself is useless. <laughs> um, so what I learned is the best testing method is most likely going to be free. Um, and there are so many tools for testing, uh, different programs, and especially in the age of social media. I mean, you can test an idea with a landing page. Yeah. You can test with a Facebook group, in my case, on an Instagram page. Um, Is this applicable so, to both B2C and B2B model, uh, business models, or is it more related to B2C? I think B2C is much easier in this case because I started generating revenues way much faster um, when it, it was an e-commerce website. With B2B, uh, yeah, getting like the sales cycle is way much longer. Um, and in this case, yes, this is where, where can you sustain? Can you uh, wait this long? If you can, then yes. If you can't, then you should fundraise. So probably what I understand is that if you go to the B2B side for some reason, because that's the product that you want to build, probably fundraising is more relevant or more necessary uh, because you need to cover this longer sales cycle uh, that is required for a, a business sale. But I also know startups, um, um, like I know a startup in Iraq, they are B2B. And for some reason, they did their B2B sales beautifully that they did not really have to fundraise for it. And any tips um, from this experience, from this and insights, I mean, and that was about to ask because now you are on the B2B side, of course, how you can get your first customers, okay? You had the luxury of raising funds and raising some funds and probably cover some part of, uh, of your operational expenses for the first year or something. But if you are not in this good position or before raising this money, what's the best way what's the best approach to go and find these two three first customers that will validate what you're building and probably will give you some money to extend your runway before you raise money if you raise money from investors i think um talking to people and maybe this is where passion serves you <laughs> if you like what you do you will be talking about it the more you talk about it most likely someone is going to introduce mm -hmm. you to someone else um, either during an acceleration program, maybe during um, Founder Institute like myself, or during uh, just grabbing coffee with a friend, a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, talk about it. If you talk about it, most likely someone is going to introduce you to someone. Um, before joining Founder Institute, I, was, I, I, I used to think I had this mindset as well. I have a great idea. I will not tell anyone no. about it. <laughs> and I think this is the worst thing you can ever do to yourself. So the more you share, actually, this is how I, I got my angel round. I was talking about it. <laughs> nice. Uh, so you don't even get a customer. You get the money. Maybe you get the co-founder. Uh, you get a partner. But if you don't talk about it, 
you're getting nothing. Yeah, I like it. And uh, I have seen this this type of, you know, this, this typology of founders probably perform better. The founders who talk about the business, who talk about the industry instead of talking about product features or, uh, you know, what we will build, but talking about how we'll build the, the business, what's the problem that we want to solve and so on. Um, great stuff. There is some other section which, for some reason, I think it's becoming emerging in the startup ecosystem, not only in, uh, in uh, the MENA region, but across the globe, which is we, we know, and this is something that we take it from gra- for granted, that early stage startups do not have enough resources. They don't have the, probably the, 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 the great technical co-founder or, the, or they don't know how they will go, how they will take the product into the market. And there are many advow- advisors or experts out there. Is it something that you think that works? It doesn't work. There is always you know, the argument that says that the, an external advisor will never understand your business. I mean, they will share with you some very general advices. Do you see value on, you know, uh, getting, uh, having on board some advisors, some experts? How do you approach the whole thing? Or do you think that you should try the hard way and build everything in-house on your own with your co-founders? What's, what's your approach on this? I would say it depends on both questions. I will explain. So from my own experience, uh, when it comes to advisors, we have a lot of noise. So anyone can be an advisor now, um, which is which is scary, again, to early stage founders. Because as an early stage founder, I don't know. I'm here to learn. So what if you're, you're teaching me something wrong? I will never know. And it happens a lot. And I see it happen a lot. And... and it's scary because this strong advisor could drag you into, into really dark places. <laughs> um, and sometimes these advisors are coming from, unfortunately, big programs, at least from, from my region. Uh, what served me well um, is um, when I work, I do love advisors. I, I think I just mentioned that um, I only learned about e-commerce through an advisor. Um, and I like having constant call with one advisor because, yes, of course, they will not understand my business at first. But if you if, if this is a relationship, they will. Uh, and sometimes you don't even want them to understand your business because you're not discussing something operational. You're discussing maybe fundraising. Uh, and sometimes it's actually really good for someone who does not understand your business to give you feedback. So the real question is, how would I know a good advisor from a bad one? So based on your That's experience, how do you define, how do you find, first of all, a good advisor? What's, what's the, you know, where, where, are you, where you, you need to go to find a good advisor? And what are the traits or the things that you need to do or to see before making the action? Say, okay, I will work with this guy for the next year or for the, you know, uh, for the entire life cycle of, of my business? Uh, first, I like talking to people. You never know. So I try not to judge uh, a book by the cover. I did meet great advisors in general from Founder Institute. I did great. I did meet great advisors through Flat6 Labs. Um, 
I mean, these are the programs that I've been through. Uh, three uh, through Shewin, um, Shewin Arabia also had good advisors. Uh, she entrepreneurs had good advisors. In general, these programs, or um, okay, because these programs understand what is a startup. So most probably they're getting you someone good. That being said, even if I like working with advisor X, maybe you won't. Like I would tell you advisor X is so amazing, but then you, when you work with him or her, you might not, might not like it. So to me, as much as I hear feedback from others about the person, I also judge myself. Is this serving me or not? Are we aligned or not? Um, so you're at maybe trial, I, I mean, before on board? Before. Of course, of course, talk to the person. And most of the programs will allow you to talk to the person. Um, you, can, you can talk to people who said this person is good. Ask them why. Uh, as founders, it's your job to actually find the answer, not just mm. um, follow the trend. Like your job is literally not to follow the trend. Uh, so do your job and, and ask why. Um, I personally also trust my gut feeling. I think it served me a lot in this case specifically. Um, I can tell if someone is genuinely trying to help me or someone is genuinely trying to show me that they are better than me. <laughs> mm. well, there are these um, ego cases. You have come across this kind of ego cases. There are advisors who just want to, to prove that they know more or they are better for, for some reason. Yes, so you can, I think... If you open up and start noticing, you will see if this person is serving you mm. and uh, if this person is just wasting your time. Even if you don't know, by the way, you will notice that your time is wasted. Yeah. Based on your experience with advisors, you know, because you have, uh, uh, you have attended all these programs, you, 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 know, you graduated from Flatsix Labs and FI. Do you think that it's more important to have as an advisor, someone who knows the domain, someone who knows the function, for example, someone who knows the go-to-market or knows the product development, uh, someone who has been an entrepreneur in the past, what is for you probably the most important criterion before start engaging with some potential advisor? Yeah, I think to me, I will not generalize because, again, my first advisor have never had a startup, but he was amazing because I was also asking him about an industry specific topic. So he did like, so in this case, it's good. It depends again on the question. Mm -hmm. If you are asking industry specific questions and you get an industry expert, then it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But if you are asking, um, actually, I, I would combine both. Because you want the industry expert, but then these expertise in the industry will not mainly work in a startup, especially in early stages, because these people work with hundreds of, 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 of dollars invested in infrastructure that I don't have. They have the uh, resources that I don't have. So how am I going to apply this to that? So the job of a, uh, an industry expert for me is to set some guidelines of how things look like. And uh, I like to work with entrepreneurs, um, even if, if it's not in my same um, industry, because some things will, will, will overlap. 
uh, like asking another, maybe sometimes another entrepreneur, how did you get over this problem? Mm. I like these, their answers. They make sense to me. So I would like to have an industry expert uh, in in, a, in the, the section that I'm working with. I like to talk to other founders and I also like to talk to um, advisors specified in sales, in marketing, mm -hmm. uh, because at some point you do need to do sales. How are you going so to do it? The ideal advisory board for you will be a combination of domain experts uh, and functional experts on marketing, on sales, on good market, on product. This will be the idea. And what about, um, you know, um, their fees? Or, I mean, is it about equity? Uh, is it about uh, retainer? What, what you have seen that works better for you, of course, as a, from the founder's perspective? I have been learning about this, by the way. So um, I, I might know some segments of the whole uh, answer. Uh, when I first learned about it, actually, I didn't know that someone could do this service for me. I used to think it's just someone we talk and goodbye and that's it. And then I learned, oh, I can have um, a constant relationship with this person. Um, the basic one that I know about is equity, giving them equity. Uh, but that equity is not 10% because I also used to think like this is how much equity you give to an advisor. Uh, there are documents online, um, which is, uh, I think, the FAST agreement by Founder Institute. It specifies um, approximately how much equity you give to advisor based on how much time they spend um, with you. And also based on the level of the startup, if it's an idea, a pre-idea, MVP, like based on the level of uh, the growth of the startup, um, that's one way to do it. Uh, other uh, founders in later stages actually don't want to give equity. They'd rather pay money. Um, it's actually cheaper. Which of these two models do you think it's, it works best, better for you? Or you think it's more... Um... I mean, I don't... Personally, I don't mind giving equity. Why? Because if you have equity, you will care. Um, and I do want the person to care at the end of the day. Um, I don't think money is the best. Um, of course, we all want money. I want money. You want money. But relationships that are purely based on money might not be the most successful, in my own opinion, uh, especially in early stages. Again, in later, later stages, I believe things change. Um, I don't. I'm flexible. To be honest, uh, my goal is I'm happy. My advisor is happy. This is the best recipe for us to do a good job. Hannah, apart from entrepreneur, I know that you are also a mother. Um, being an entrepreneur on its own, I think it's something very difficult and very challenging. But also being a mother on its own is something very challenging, very important. Uh, probably the most important role out there. How do you manage to combine these two very, very important and challenging roles? I have a great partner. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the secret. I mean, yeah, I think it's the same secret in a startup. Don't be the superhero. <laughs> so it's, it's all about building a team around you. It's all about building a, a support system around you. Yes, because honestly, it's impossible for anyone to be 
with full energy 24/7 um and yeah it's it's impossible so for me i i have a great partner and we um I'm not going to say it's 50-50 because sometimes it's 70-30, sometimes it's 30-70, but I, I'm not uh, doing it on my own. Yeah. So. How old are your kids? Two and seven. Do they understand to some extent what you are trying to build or what you are doing with Bloomcard? Sorry? Two years and seven years. Yeah, yeah. At least the, yeah. the big one. Does yes. he have any, any understanding on what... You are trying to build with Bloom Cards. What are you working on? Actually, what he knows is that I go on stages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he knows that I can speak on a stage. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good. That's a good one. That's a good trade. Yeah, but I mean, um, has, has he understood that you are working something with technology? I mean, uh, with retail, with e-commerce. I mean, he he knows like my mom has a company <laughs> my mom goes on stage uh when i remember once i won a grant and he thought it's likes he was like oh my god you have 20,000 likes you're so popular <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks when i'm pitching i have a youtube channel <laughs> um but i mean yes he knows i'm building something um He, he still thinks it's the e-commerce website. Like, he did not do the update on the pivot. <laughs> yeah. Hannah, if you had to, to choose one key takeaway from your experience so far that you would like to uh, honestly share with, uh, with the community, with other early-stage B2B SaaS founders, what this will be? I think, to me, my biggest lesson is don't even try to be a superhero. It doesn't work. You will burn out. Um, that's one. Two, not everyone will like you. That's pretty normal. That's pretty okay. The most important thing is I like me. <laughs> um, because if I don't like me, then I have a problem. Yeah. Um, so it's all about building a team around you on a personal, but personal And you should like yourself. You like yourself. <laughs> I mean... When, when you are pitching to someone, when you are talking to someone, it's not because you want them to validate you. I used to do this a lot, by the way. I used to look for validation through my work mm -hmm. to, to self-validate. And that's, that was the worst thing I ever did to myself. Um, stop validating yourself through others. You are already validated. Is it something that you see, apart from your personal experience, is it something that you can see as a pattern that founders seek for validation they are insecure yeah because it's tough you know when when i i mean we we as founders have these two uh contradictions of um i'm no i'm no one i'm a loser or oh my god i'm so great and it's and both are so wrong um but but at the same time we go through both these phases um constantly and sometimes very closely like today you are the best one in the room and tomorrow you suck so yeah. <laughs> so if, if if we keep getting this validation from the outside world we will die mm. it's impossible i think that's that's a great advice that's a great advice um before closing uh this really insightful conversation at least to for my standards 
any any resource, any book that you have come across or that you read recently and or you know sometime in the past that was particularly very helpful to you? I read a book called Brain versus Capital um, from a German entrepreneur. Um, I really like it because it actually answers the question of do we necessarily have to have money to start a startup? And before reading the book, I used to think that I can never have a startup or a business without having the money. And then it takes me back to the egg and chicken. And after reading the book, I realized all I need to do is start. <laughs> so I, I highly recommend it for someone who wants to start a business and doesn't know where to start. Hannah, I had an amazing time. I really enjoyed our conversation. You shared so many insightful, I think, uh, uh, tips, stories. Um, I can, at least at the personal level, I can totally resonate with most of them. Uh, for me, it was amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Vyos. And uh, thank you for the great questions. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.